Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Why choose a Sleep Number Smart Bed? Can I make my side softer? Can I make my side firmer? Whenever I want? Can, Can we, we sleep, sleep cooler? Sleep Number does that. Cools up to eight times faster and lets you choose your ideal comfort on either side. 94% of Sleep Number smart sleepers report better sleep. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com. When extreme weather events rear their ugly heads, our first concerns are naturally with people and property. But sometimes we tend to forget the impacts on the environment around us and the animals that also inhabit the same spaces. The impact on their environment also leads to huge impacts on the economies around their habitats as well. As we move on and focus our attention on the next weather event, the unheard cries of the environment beg for us to notice them. Additionally, as our climate is changing and the world continues to get warmer, those impacts can become more exasperated. What do we need to do as an industry of meteorologists and scientists to start focusing more on these issues before our attention is taken elsewhere? We brought in Dr. Stephen Thur, Assistant Administrator of Oceanic and Atmospheric Research at NOAA. Dr. Thur, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Dr. Shepard, thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I was really excited when I heard that you were going to be on the show. Weather Geeks spans the horizon of topics, and this is something that I've wanted to talk about for some time, and uh, it's really a, a, a get to have you on the show. I've got to start where I start every podcast, and I don't know if it's the appropriate question, but how'd you become a weather geek or how'd you become an ecology geek? So I've listened to a few of your podcasts. I knew you started with this question. I have to say I might be one of your few guests that can't claim to be a weather geek. I am an oceans geek, and we'll take I think it. I could probably be an environmental geek. Uh, I'll claim those titles. Um, and for me, it started with family vacations when I was a kid. Uh, my family every year would spend a week or two at the beach in, in the mid-Atlantic where I grew up. Um, and I had a draw for the ocean. It just lured me in. Um, I went to, to undergrad focusing on marine biology. I wove in some economics. Uh, I am academically a mutt in that regard. Uh, and I chose to, to go on to higher education focusing on marine policy. So how can we um, govern our ocean spaces for um, the benefit of future generations? Well, we claim all geeks here on the show and we embrace the term no matter what particular discipline you're from. Let me give you a little bit of Dr. Thur's background before we get into a, a discussion of ecological forecasting and some of the things that he has been up to. And also I want to hear about his role at NOAA as well. Uh, Dr. Thur received a PhD in marine policy from the University of Delaware's Graduate College of Marine Studies. He also holds bachelor's degrees in biology and economics from St. Mary's College of Maryland. He is, as I noted in the intro, the assistant administrator of oceanic and atmospheric research uh, at NOAA. 
Uh, NOAA obviously is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and he comes to NOAA research following ne- nearly two decades of NOAA's National Ocean Service, where he served in that role, most recently as the director of its National Centers for Coastal Ocean Sciences. So we're going to be diving a little bit, I suspect, into what I know NOAA calls the wet side. Uh, I, as someone that has certainly uh, advised NOAA in capacities on its science advisory board and climate working group, I, I learned that lingo as well. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So give the listeners a little bit of background, first of all, on your official role there at OAR. So um, I have the pleasure and the honor of directing the largest component of the agency dedicated to research on weather, climates, the oceans and our Great Lakes. Um, And so we have 10 laboratories across the country. We have six program offices, all dedicated to conducting research to further address societal challenges in the environmental space. Um, and it's a, a great pleasure. I've been here about four months. Uh, as you mentioned, I came from the National Ocean Service, a different part of the agency where I had spent uh, almost two decades. Indeed. And the National Ocean Service is, again, a little 101 because Weather Geeks listeners, I know, are familiar with the National Weather Service, perhaps even NESDIS. But when you're hearing things like the National Ocean Service or uh, fisheries, uh, these are aspects of NOAA as well that are critical to the nation. And so uh, it's important that we span the horizon of what the NOAA agency mission is. Uh, Many of our listeners are familiar with weather forecasting, meteorological forecasting. Use this opportunity to enlighten the audience on what ecological forecasting is. Yeah. So ecological forecasting is producing a projection or a prediction um, for a potential future state. Uh, And and instead of being the weather phenomenon, it is generally based on a particular set of biological organisms. And so um, just like weather forecasting, we produce ecological forecasts that run anywhere from the next couple of hours out to perhaps uh, a season looking ahead. And each one is tailored to a particular management need for the information uh, contained in the forecast. You know, it's interesting. I noticed the sort of differences in how we pronounce the word here. I think I I have a little Southern dialect here because uh, I I do hear people say ecological and I sometimes hear people say ecological. It's interesting because I'm here at the University of Georgia where we have the Odom School of Ecology. And so I work quite closely with many ecologists across the spectrum. What, What do you believe is the most challenging hurdle facing us right now in the world of ecological forecasting? So um, I I personally think the most challenging aspect of ecological forecasting is that there isn't a single entity um, that should or could operate all ecological forecasts. So if you think about the weather enterprise, we have the National Weather Service. They're the governmental entity charged with issuing forecasts. And then we have this collection, the broader weather enterprise that also produces their own forecast for a multitude of users. We don't have a singular entity and there is not yet a private sector that has uh, stepped up to provide ecological forecasting products. And so we have the ability to develop these. The transition into routine operations has been a challenge 
because we don't have ready-made operational entities to move them to. That's that's really fascinating. Are you suggesting that we need the private sector to stand up in that regard? It's a really interesting thought because I know for many years as someone that has been in the meteorological community, I've seen the evolution of the public-private partnership in the on the weather side in terms of, I think there was a lot more, I guess, conflict and challenge and tension early on in those days, in the early days, in terms of what's the role of the National Weather Service versus what are the roles of private sector forecasters. But I've seen those entities come together in part because of organizations like the NWA and the American Meteorological Society. I mean, then there's still some things still to be worked out, but I think they play together. Are you suggesting we need a similar trajectory on the ecological forecasting side? I'm suggesting that is a a possible pathway. Um, So you mentioned one of my backgrounds. I am a recovering economist. Uh, I don't do any economics any longer. Um, But once it gets in you, it it never leaves. Um, And so I, I do think that there is a tremendous benefit to the profit motive of the private sector. And if there is uh, a market for an information product, um, companies can step into that unfilled space. And so in, in, a, in a very economics way, certain ecological forecasts could be considered private goods. They could be targeted to specific industries where knowledge that is shared from a private sector provider can be monetized and and profited upon. There are other kinds of forecasts that are closer to public goods that probably do make sense for broad distribution. And so the model of having the US weather enterprise um, with government entities, as well as private sector actors, I think is one that could be considered for ecological forecasting. Talking with Dr. Stephen Thurr from NOAA, and let me give you a little bit more of his background because he didn't mention being an economist. I think one of his first roles within NOAA was with the NOAA Office of Response and Restoration, and he was an economist there. He's also been the coordinator of NOAA's Coral Reef Conservation Program, where he oversaw the development of the National Coral Reef Monitoring Program. So you can get a sense of the diversity in his background in terms of ecological forecasting and so forth. When talking about coastal ecology and biodiversity, there are a myriad of factors that come into play, like salinity levels, for example, erosion, water temperatures, and much more. Weather also plays a role in those variables. Let's connect the dots for people since this is Weather Geeks. How does the world of weather and climate impact some of these coastal ecological and biodiversity factors? Yeah, I want to give you a very specific and and perhaps a good news story about ecological forecasting that relies heavily upon uh, weather information. So there's an organism. Um, most folks know it as red tide. It occurs every year off southwest Florida. It can occur elsewhere in the Gulf. It's not as common. Um, and this uh, organism produces a toxin that can cause folks Uh, respiratory distress. So if you have asthma or other respiratory problems, you're walking along the beach on a particular day, um, you can be impacted. And for severe red tide, we actually have data that show emergency room visits spike um, due to respiratory distress among the, the population. And so we have moved from an ecological forecast that was produced about 12 years ago at a countywide level, two times a week, which is very coarse scale, down to every beach every day, and that we are producing a forecast 
um, in three hour increments. And this organism um, in the waves, it uh, the cells will break apart, their toxins get aerosolized. And, and that's the same factor that allows us to smell the sea breeze. Um, weather, particularly wind forecasts, drive this ecological forecast. So we use water monitoring, water quality monitoring, cell counts. We combine that with wind forecasts to let folks know, should you go to the beach in the morning or in the afternoon? Well, the wind may shift. You may have a horrible experience in the morning. If you're going to the beach today, head out in the afternoon. If you've got asthma, it'll be much better for your health. You'll enjoy your visit uh, much more thoroughly. This has a huge economic impact for the tourism industry in South Florida. Moving from every county twice a week to every beach every three hours allows folks to preserve beach vacations that they otherwise would have skipped uh, because of such a warning. Where do people find these forecasts? Are, are there some websites out there? Is there an app? Is there an alert system? Because this is, again, maybe getting back to what we were talking about with the weather service in that I think people you know, through various apps and through media companies and private sector companies can go and get these forecasts. If there's a tornado or a hurricane approaching, where do they go to get an, um, a red tide forecast? So for red tide specifically, there is an app. It's not very old. It's done in partnership between us um, and others in the Gulf region, um, both county organizations as well as uh, the Gulf Coast Ocean Observing System. So there is an app there. But this particular forecast gets picked up by quite a bit of popular media in, in the local area. And so a lot of folks will hear about it through visiting those media's websites or hearing their, their online broadcasts. More generally, um, one of the challenges with having a lot of different operators is that there's no singular source for information about ecological forecasts. And that may be okay because some of these are highly targeted to specific user groups. They're not intended necessarily for the general public. Uh, I'll give one example. There is uh, uh, every year a harmful algal bloom, so tiny plant-like organisms that live in the Great Lakes uh, in Lake Erie. And this happens every summer. A lot of the locals know about it. It turns the water green. It forms a scum. It's not a place you want to go to recreate. Well, that organism produces a toxin that gets into drinking water supplies. So the drinking water plant operators are a huge consumer of that particular ecological forecast. We directly message with them when we produce each forecast a couple of times a week. And so um, some of these are general public, like beachgoers. Others are highly specific industries, shellfish, drinking water treatment operators, um, those running charter boat uh, operations. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Dr. Stephen Thur, the Assistant Administrator of Oceanic and Atmospheric Research at NOAA. Many of us in the weather world know it as OAR, and so you may hear me refer to it in that way. 
You know, it's interesting because our students at the University of Georgia through a small sat project with NASA launched a small satellite at, uh, into orbit a few years ago to look at ocean color and things like red tides and so forth. And so I'm familiar with some of these terms. I'm curious about how climate change is impacting the frequency and intensity of things like algal blooms or red tides. And I also know that there are other things like the nitrogen cycle and things that also impact some of these uh, hazards as well. So talk to us about the overall anthropogenic impact of some of these uh, phenomena that you've mentioned. So climate change is going to have a huge impact on so many of our natural resources and uh, ecological forecasting needs to fill in that space. We can't presume the experience that we've had over the last several decades in our environment is going to be the same experience we're going to have going forward. Uh, the baseline is shifting. And so what does this mean for ecological forecasting? One, we're seeing species migrate north. And so there have been species that may be harmful. Think about uh, uh, toxin-producing organisms impacting fish or shell fisheries. They may be found further north by hundreds of kilometers. Um, and communities that relied upon, for instance, subsistence harvest in Alaska now have to worry about concerns that previously only those in perhaps Washington state used to have to worry about. Um, moving outside of NOAA and moving more into the terrestrial realm, there are crop pests that can't overwinter um, because they are killed by extended low temperatures. As our winters become milder, those pests are migrating further north and this becomes a food security issue and that we have to think about different seeds different pesticides that would have to be used to combat pests that were previously only found further south. And then finally, bringing it back to NOAA, our fisheries are moving. Many of them are migrating northward. And so when we think about coastal communities that have evolved over the last couple of centuries to harvest a particular resource, those fishermen now have to maybe move further north or certainly expend more fuel and effort to get to their traditional fishery. You know, even as I think about that and listen and listen to you, I, I reflect on an article I wrote several years ago in Forbes about one of my favorite TV shows, The Deadliest Catch, which deals with the uh, crab industry in Alaska. And there was a season where they were dealing with the fact that many of the, I believe, the king or the affiliate crab were migrating elsewhere because of temperature changes. And so really resonates with exactly what you say. And it really kind of walks me into the next question that I had for you, which is, Listeners in Boston, New York, New Orleans, they're sitting here listening to this, even Atlanta. And they say, well, why do I care about ecological forecasting? But I think you just gave a foray into that answer. But what are some other reasons why just the average citizen, I mean, you know, because one of the things I find, and particularly when we talk about climate related things, is people don't connect the dots because they're more interested in paying their electric bill or providing food for their families and health of their children. And they don't perceive these types of things as being directly related to those same things. Uh, talk a little bit more, more about that, particularly as an economist. Yeah, so I think what I meant, just mentioned about food security is, is one of the uh, broadest based impacts uh, that we can potentially address through ecological forecasting. Um, if we're having to um, travel further to harvest seafood, or if we're having to change how we farm in the center part of our country, that's going to have pocketbook impacts at the grocery store for many folks. There are others. Um, even if an ecological phenomenon 
doesn't occur exactly where you live, it may happen where you choose to vacation or recreate. Um, and it may be that you want some information about how nice, if you save up all year for a one-week vacation, um, what information can I get that's going to maximize my family's enjoyment of that precious time away from work, away from school, the time that you invest with your family? And that might be through an ecological forecast. And I'll use one other example. Um, for many, pets are part of our families. And every year we have a large number of pet deaths due to things that we can predict through ecological forecasts. So you may not go into that lake with some green scum, but you may not prevent your dog chasing the frisbee or the ball um, from taking a, a, a lap of water or two. Um, and that may be enough to, to cause the loss of a loved pet. And so there are lots of ways that these forecasts can feed directly into something that's very real for a large number of those in our country. Talking with Dr. Stephen Thur from Na NOAA. I almost said NASA because you mentioned NASA earlier, and I have some background at NASA myself. But you mentioned the forecast. Now, as a meteorologist with weather forecasting, with numerical weather prediction in general, there are some specific challenges that we face in terms of getting the forecast right. And we also deal with the sort of cliche weather forecast are wrong, which in fact, we know they're quite good. Uh, there are perception issues out there. But having said that, uh, there are still challenges with weather forecasting. You're predicting uh, the change in a, a fluid that has nonlinearities, but we're linearizing equations, uh, thermodynamic and fluid dynamic equations to make predictions. So there are challenges in our computing speed, there are challenges in the resolution of the input data that goes into the models, uh, in the observational data that's available in the boundary layer and so forth. What are the specific challenges inherent to uh, ecological forecasting? So I'll, I'll cover three um, in, in a very general sense. And these will align, I think, really well with your listeners' understanding of, of how a weather forecast is produced. First, we need observations. Uh, and for some of these, satellites give us all that we need. For other ecological forecasts, we need to spend a lot of money to collect ephemeral data from a ship or from a plane or through processing of water samples. And those can be very expensive. So getting high quality and high resolution observations is a, a first challenge. The second is the modeling that then is the engine of production of the forecast, we have to understand not only the physical parameters, but the biological parameters and what may trigger what may be harmful to humans for whatever phenomenon we're looking at. And so we have the same challenges with modeling, access to high performance computing, um, getting the variables and their parameters correct. And then the third challenge is dissemination. So you may have the best ecological forecast. If it doesn't get to the users that need it, it's not going to improve society. And so what communication challenges um, can we overcome to get the word out in an effective manner? So I'd say three components along the whole sort of life cycle of the development of an ecological forecast experience challenges very similar to those in weather forecasting. Now, you are the director of OAR, and there are several labs that are, are a part of OAR. I think we actually had um, one of your uh, lab directors recently on the show, and Dr. Danae Carlos, my good friend and colleague, who uh, congratulations to Danae on making history and his appointment, and thank you all for the appointment. 
Can you talk about which of your lab, because I think many of our listeners may be familiar with some of the more meteorological focused research labs, like the National Severe Storms Lab, or I guess AOML down in down in, in Florida, which deals a lot with ocean and hurricane related things and so forth. But talk a little bit about your labs and which ones are most focused on sort of the ecological or oceanic aspects. Yeah, so I can mention uh, three. You touched on one. I'll start with uh, the Atlantic Oceanographic and Meteorological Lab in Miami, AOML. They have a hurricane research division, so some of your listeners may know of this lab. They also do work in the marine environment. Um, They're located in South Florida, and they do have a role in assisting us with research leading to improvements in the forecasting for red tide. And so they have a very tight geographic nexus. They also have an oceanographic division. And so those are folks that are working on ocean circulation models. So just like atmospheric circulation, we've got the the same thing in the marine environment, uh, fluid dynamics, et cetera. In the Great Lakes, we have another one of our um, coastal laboratories, the Great Lakes Environmental Research Lab in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and they meant they work among others on uh, the harmful algal bloom forecast I mentioned in Lake Erie. They do overflights each summer. They also do water sampling and are working on new technologies, uh, robots in a can, in essence, that can autonomously sample uh, the environment. So it cuts out a human step that is quite tedious in the laboratory to run a water sample. And the third uh, wet lab that we have is the Pacific um, Marine Environmental Lab, PMEL, in Seattle. They do a lot of work in the Pacific Northwest and Alaska, including basin-wide research on ocean circulation patterns uh, and data collection. Yeah, this this is really important. I'm talking with Dr. Stephen Thur from Noah, and I, I wanted to get that question in. I want to take a break, and then I've got a really big question for Dr. Thur, and it's not related to ecology. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. I'm speaking with Dr. Stephen Thurn. The big question I wanted to ask is, are you available to ref some soccer? <laughs> so a little birdie told me that you love soccer and are is certified as a collegiate soccer referee. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, I am. Your little birdie is uh, accurate and has some pretty good information. Uh, I played soccer. It's been part of my life uh, since I was four. Uh, I played soccer through college. I've coached youth for about a dozen years. I've refereed for a little over 20. Um, so, yes, I, I've mostly retired from coaching. And uh, in terms of refereeing, I only do it at the collegiate level now. Uh, I've stepped aside from younger levels. What is your biggest match that you've refereed? Any any matches or teams we would have at least heard of? So I, I think with um, age and experience, the answer to this question has changed. If you had asked me three or four years ago, I probably would have listed a specific match, maybe 
uh, an NCAA quarterfinal game or a conference championship game that I had worked, that's not the answer I'm going to give you. Um, I think with with a little bit more reflection, the answer is the last game a senior plays in that particular year. So I'm going to be doing this year after year after year. I've refed well over 800 games. The senior games, the last one for a particular cohort come late October every year is the most meaningful game for them, whether they were a starter for four years or whether they got in just that one game because they were a senior. I recognize now this is about the student athlete, and that's probably a whole lot more memorable for a lot more student athletes than any particular championship game is. Uh, and so my answer is, whatever senior games I ref in a particular season. And I resonate with that as someone who last year had a daughter play her last high school volleyball match as well. And the sort of specialness of that moment. Okay, let's circle back. I, I really wanted to get that in because I, I, you know, we have a really amazing weather production staff here and their research is impeccable. So I, I, I thought that was fascinating when that was shared with me, but I want to sort of circle back to you now. I, I see you as we're recording this podcast, you're sitting in what looks to be your office there at NOAA. Tell us about a typical day for the assistant administrator of oceanic and atmospheric research at NOAA. So I'm not sure that any day is particularly typical. And uh, honestly, that's something that attracted me to this role last year. Um, with portfolios in weather, climate, and our oceans and Great Lakes, it's really diverse. And so I could be talking about the next generation of phased array radar and then talking about the ship capability that we need to recapitalize to continue our oceanographic uh, operations in back-to-back -back meetings. Um, so I don't know that there's a particularly typical day. What I will say is um, I've been really energized in getting out in my first four months to our laboratories and to meet our stakeholders around the country. So um, I hope to have fewer days in the office in those meetings and more days out visiting our staff producing the research and our stakeholders consuming that to understand what they need for us next. Putting on either your science scientist, economist, or NOAA administrative hat, what keeps you up at night or what, what really drives you going from this point forward? Yeah. For me, it, um, throughout my entire career, making a difference in society is what's driven me. Um, and so I, I will share, while I was an undergrad, I had the opportunity as a junior to go with two professors from a very small school to the Caribbean to do some research. That was awesome, right? Nearly free trip to Belize to study coral reefs. And to get there, I had to do organic chemistry. And I learned <laughs> yes. through those three weeks that I hated organic chemistry. But by witnessing what I saw underwater, we were doing that research in a well-functioning marine protected area. It dawned on me with the right governance structure, we can coexist in our environmental state in a way that preserves it for future generations. That moment has led me throughout my entire career to focus on societal challenges and how we can solve those through science. No, it's interesting you mentioned organic chemistry because there's certainly maybe some college student out there nodding their head in agreement about organic chemistry. I've heard horror stories about it myself. We're really coming to the end of the podcast, but are there any websites or social media sites that our listeners can sort of follow 
any of these labs or OAR and others, are, are there particular things that you want to highlight before we get out of here? So there are two. Um, first, if you if you uh, search NOAA ecological forecasts, it will take you to a portal. Um, these are the ones that we uh, maintain and operate, and you can get to roughly 12 or 14 of these. You can see the diversity of geography of subject. So if you're interested in ecological forecasting, search NOAA ecological forecast, you'll hit that site. And then for our organization, NOAA Oceanic and Atmospheric Research, it's a pretty simple address. It's research.noaa.gov. Uh, and you can find the full breadth of what we work on there. You know, I really enjoyed this conversation. And I just, your background looks to me what scientists are going to have to look like. I mean, we, we are speaking with someone with a PhD in marine policy and degrees in biology and economics. I mean, that's a real convergence of how science to me, and this is sort of how I approach it in my own research, uh, is evolving. I mean, I can't be siloed as a meteorologist anymore. The problems that we face and that you heard Dr. Thur talk about are at the intersection of economics, health, food security, water supply, and so much more. So Dr. Thur, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Dr. Shepard, I very much appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity to talk with your listeners. We can't get out of here. It's still that time of the podcast where we highlight our geek of the week. We like to feature a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Howard Gebhardt. Howard is a senior air quality scientist from Fort Collins, Colorado, whose favorite type of weather is unique cloud formations. He wanted to be a meteorologist since elementary school, me too, and his love for weather also helped meet his wife, who is also a meteorologist. A whole lot of weather love in that family. If you or someone you know would be a deserving candidate for our next Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages. Again, Dr. Third, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And as always, thank you for listening to Weather Geeks. Weather Geeks.